I mean, what's the difference between a stranger and your mom? You know, it's the amount of stories that you share together. Hi, Steve Shepard here for the Natural Curiosity Project. I met my guest for this episode because he's the host of one of my favorite podcasts. Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department. UAF Kojo, tell great stories. I'm Rob Prince. So who's Rob Prince other than a podcast host? Well, Rob Prince is a a product of mid-Michigan and uh, grew up there and uh, went to college there. And then in 2005, I, I finished my master's from Michigan State. And I was ready for adventure, you know. And so there was a sense of you must go and make a name for yourself and bring honor upon the, the family name. And so I went up, uh, came up here to Alaska to teach documentary filmmaking in the um, what's now the communication and journalism department. And been doing that for about 15 years. I really, I love teaching. I love storytelling in the nonfiction storytelling. And documentary filmmaking. It's been a a great job because I can reinvent myself as many times as I want up here. <laughs> when your job is like communication, pretty much anything counts as work, you know. <laughs> so I've 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 reinvented myself many times. And then Alaska is a wonderful place if you want to reinvent yourself because there just aren't a lot of people here. And if you want to be a podcast host, you can be a podcast host. If you want to be a stand-up comic, you can be a stand-up comic. Like there's not there's not a lot of competition here. So it's one of the best things about living up here is you can come up here and and be whatever you want and nobody's going to tell you otherwise. So you teach documentary filmmaking at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, but you also host Dark Winter Nights, which folks, let me tell you, is among the best story-centric podcasts I have ever heard. And you know how committed I am to storytelling. Rob brings on these amazing guests who are really ordinary people who tell these extraordinary stories about life in Alaska. Some of them are wet-your-pants funny, some are horrifying, some are tender and tear-inducing, but they're all good. And they all tell the story of life in the country's largest and most remote state. So, Rob, let me ask you, how did the program come about? As a documentary filmmaker, I'm always looking for cool new stories to tell. And one of my frustrations was that I was hearing all these great stories, but they were things that had already happened. And in the world of documentary filmmaking, it's way better if you can catch things as they're happening or before they happen so you can film it. So there are all these great stories. I felt like this whole treasure trove of material that I couldn't touch because there was no video to go with it. And I'm not going to like reenact all these things. Like It just looks ridiculous. It's a ton of work. And so I, I had fallen in love with, with podcasts, things like This American Life, Snap Judgment, these storytelling podcasts. And at the same time, I had, I had seen that people are very interested in Alaska, and there's a lot of reality TV shows coming up here. And they're all from, like, L.A. area, basically. And one of them actually emailed me and said, hey, we want to do a reality TV show about someone moving into a dry cabin. A sort of house hunters, but for dry cabins, which are cabins up here that have no running water. Like literally you got an outhouse and the, the extent of the plumbing in the house is about a 12 inch pipe that runs from the bottom of the sink to a five gallon bucket. And so I was like, wow, this is cool. Like Hollywood never calls me, you know, I'm, this is going to be amazing. So I helped them out, got them some names. I never heard anything back. 
And the other thing that was annoyed me about it was that they wanted someone who already lived in a dry cabin so they could film them pretending to go find a dry cabin and then just pick the one that they're already living in. And I thought, why are we why are we letting people from outside of our state come in, make up all this nonsense, <laughs> and, then, and then take it home and like, you know, profit off of it? I thought if, if people want to know what Alaska is like, it should be Alaskans sharing their own true stories from Alaska. Yeah, I've now listened to every episode you've produced, some of them more than once. My favorites uh, include the woman who managed to get a bear locked in her mudroom. I think we talked about that one. Uh, all the while, uh, a bunch of police officers were wandering outside who had no idea how to get him out of the mudroom. Um, the episode about the guy who bought a piece of land in Alaska sight unseen and decided to hike in to see it, but got lost along the way and for some reason decided that he'd be better off in the wilderness without his clothes. And of course, the various stories about crashed airplanes, disastrous camping trips, insects big enough to carry you away, and boats in icy rivers that just refuse to stay on the surface and float like they're supposed to. So before we get into the podcast itself, let me ask you this. Where do you find these people with these incredible stories, all of which kind of fall into the you-can't-make-this-stuff-up category? Alaskans are not super inclined to jump up on stage and tell people how amazing they are. We're we kind of like, you know, we're not big into bragging. You don't see a lot of like fancy cars around town. The wealthy people here don't flaunt their wealth. And so it often is a word of mouth thing. I mean, for example, this last show, I was having a hard time. We did another, our first live show in two years, uh, in, last month in, in February. And um, I was starving for storytellers. So I had a dentist appointment and I, I told my dental hygienist, I was like, you got any stories from Alaska? And she's like, well, I got this one, you know, funny story about sledding with my mom when I was a little kid. And I was like, great, you're in the show. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to. Everybody you talk to, you have to, you have to pound the pavement. It's getting better. People are starting to submit more stories to us through our website as the show gains in popularity. And so that's helping, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it would be where we'd be just like overwhelmed with people wanting to tell us stories. We really have to recruit and, and pound the pavement. Okay. So you did all that and dark winter nights launched. Tell me about the beginning. I just knew this was going to work. I mean, it, it just seemed obvious. So in April of 2014, we started with a live event because I wanted to build an audience locally as sort of a, the foundation because I knew the, the, the field of podcasting is just flooded and it's going to be really hard to make a name for yourself. So we started with a live event. Our local audience grew quickly. We also had a uh, radio program on the local public uh, radio station. Then things just grew from there. And then we, we were developing a good local audience and, you know, had a I think a modest amount of podcast subscribers. And then all of, out of the blue, a little over a year ago, the New York Times is like, oh, we think Dark Winter Nights is the best winter podcast for storytelling lovers. And we're like, I don't even know how, we had no idea they were listening. We, didn't have, we just had no clue. And so, you know, that was, that was the, a real sign that, oh, well, yeah, like we, we are now able to play at the highest levels. And that's, that's been amazing. And, and I, I credit it to the team of volunteers that I've been able to convince to stick around and keep helping doing this and who really feel like, you know, really do own the program. 
And so their commitment has been great. And then the help of our local public radio station, Lori Neufeld, who made me make the show better than I felt like making it. You know, <laughs> times like, ah, I got lots to do this week. I'm just going to slap this episode together. And then she'd come back to me and be like, no, you got, you can't do that. You got to fix these things. No, that's really great, Rob. You and your team deserve the honor. And the program it truly is great. Now, before we end this episode, I want to talk with you about journalism. But before I do, let me ask you a question about storytelling. Obviously, it figures pretty prominently in the success of Dark Winter Nights, but it's also an important part of journalism. Why, in your mind, is storytelling so important? I think it's easier to explain why air is important than it is to explain why storytelling is important. Storytelling does so much for us. First of all, it's our main source of entertainment. I had a I had a kind of epiphany one time when when my daughter was young and she you know I'd put her to bed and she'd want me to read her a story she'd want me to make up a story for her and I was like oh you know making up stories is so it's just exhausting <laughs> so you know she but she wants a story before bed so I'd read her a story or I'd try and make something up put her to bed and then I would go and turn on the TV and and I realized I was basically telling the TV tell me a story there wasn't that much different from difference from, you know, two years old to at the time, you know, probably 32 years old. We all just love stories there. We are, we are just wired for that. And I can make my guesses as to why, but first of all, storytelling is, it's our, it's our main way of entertaining. It's an incredible way to connect with someone if you really want to get to know someone, you, you you tell them stories about your life, like you're asking me right now. And it's also an incredible way to teach. A lot of times when I'm teaching video, one of, one of the, I've noticed my students really perk up when I start telling them a story about some experience I had with video, particularly if it's a bad experience. <laughs> so I'll say, you know, here's, you know, today we're going to talk about audio. Let me tell you about this horrible thing that happened with audio one time. And so students engage that way. And it's also an excellent tool for persuasion. So if you want to convince someone to believe a thing similar to you, tell them a story about it. And that really connects with people. So storytelling is important because it plays all of these huge roles in our life. I mean, what's the difference between a stranger and your mom? It's the amount of stories that you share together. You know, for some people, they're more connected to someone who's not their mom because they don't have stories with their mom, but they have stories with this other person. So, you know, when you get together as a family uh, over the holidays and you start recounting, remember the time this, remember the time that, it's building these, these little like sort of like spider web connections. And the more of these that you have with someone, the more connected you're going to feel with them. When I teach my storytelling workshops, I often tell the people in the workshop that if you really want to compel someone to take some kind of action, don't tell them, show them. In other words, don't tell them to do something. Instead, show them why doing that something will lead to a better outcome. So Rob, I want to segue at this point into a conversation about journalism and the press and constitutional guarantees of a free and open press and why this is so fundamentally important to a truly democratic country. You've got a really interesting take on journalism because you sit in kind of a unique place as a documentary filmmaker. I was an odd duck when I first showed up in the journalism department 
at the University of Alaska Fairbanks because I'm a documentary filmmaker. I don't really consider myself a journalist, but they considered documentary filmmaking to be long-form journalism. And I was happy with that because, you know, they did their stuff. I did my stuff. Neither of us really understood the other and didn't really mess with each other's business. But in the course of being in this department for 15 years around these journalists and teaching classes in, in media literacy for, for all that time, I have just become fascinated and in love with media literacy and understanding how the mass media works and all the things that they are trying to do to persuade you and get you to believe things and, and behave in certain ways. And that has become really one of my favorite classes. I teach just a, a basic one-on-one level media and culture course. What's fascinating to me about it is that a lot of people just are not aware of all of the ways that the mass media they, they engage with is kind of trying to mess with them, <laughs> you know, and all the effects that this can have on you. And so I would say maybe 60 years ago, a media literacy class would have been significantly less important than it is today because there were there was a lot less media to deal with in many ways there was there were a lot more kind of eyes watching the ball but today with the social media element that we have added now with the innumerable options for um, news sources you can choose from and the different ways those news sources take shape you have got to be media literate or you will just be a sad little pawn <laughs> you'll just be like a, a little rag doll getting thrown around by mass media these days you know as someone who's taught media literacy for a decade and a half i'm still worried about how mass media can affect me and it can still dupe me i've been duped by you know what we call deep fake videos already not not for long but i you know there's there's been videos I've seen, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. And then you find out like, oh, it's totally faked, but it looked really real. And it's only going to get way, way worse as deep fakes and uh, social media evolve and, you know, mass media producers find new and interesting ways to get us to behave in the way that they want to. It, it's just, it's just absolutely absolutely critical. And I, but I, I want to make sure I don't come across as a hater of mass media. Obviously, I love mass media. Mass media and technology, I think, as a whole have been just absolutely wonderful for humanity. But you have to, it's like a car, you know, cars have been great for humanity, but you have to understand how they work. I find it interesting that you're in the field and even with all of your knowledge about media tips and techniques and tricks, even you found yourself on the receiving end of some form or another of fake news. So let me ask you this, what would you consider to be best practices for anyone who wants to make sense of this chaos, this cacophony of information that pounds us every day from so many directions? Your, your media literacy level really impacts how you should engage with news. The best practice, in my opinion, for engaging with the news is to get your sample news from a variety of highly reliable news sources. By that, I mean maybe you have five, six, or more news agencies that you understand to be reliable, and you kind of pop between the different ones. For me, 
I'm a visual guy, you know, documentary filmmaking, video production. And so for me, the way I get my news is YouTube, which seems odd. And part of me is like, should I admit that that's the way I do it? But I'm going to be honest, that's the way I do it. And the reason I do it that way is because the YouTube algorithm feeds me a lot of different news bites from a variety of reliable, but also sometimes unreliable sources. And so because I know, I feel like I can basically trust the major news networks, ABC, NBC, CNN, public television has an, or national public radio, but um, basically public television has an incredible reputation for being reliable. The BBC has a, a great reputation as well. So by understanding these major news sources, a lot of people are watching what they do and a lot of people go to them because they are reliable. I go through and and I, I spend my morning kind of scrolling through to see what's the latest and then getting different takes on it because it's interesting. Every once in a while, there'll be a big story and one news outlet will have a, a very different take from the other that will shine some light on it and help me better understand. I kind of fact check this by talking to other friends of mine who follow the news. And what I've found is that among the friends I, I talk to, this method has never left me really in the dark. If there is something going on, I know about it already. There really isn't much that, that people can, can bring up in terms of major um, international news that I, I'm not familiar with. And so for me, that was a, a test to prove like this system works for me. And then once I'm done with that, I'll usually go check in. For me, you know, the New York Times is the most highly respected internet paper in the world. And so I, I pay for subscription to them so because I want to support their work. And so I'll go and check in there and see, is there anything I missed? They have a take on something that I, that I didn't catch. And then I also have a BBC app. I go check on that once in a while too, just for kind of maybe a little bit more of like an international look or a, a look at things from um, the UK perspective. What I miss out though is local news. I get almost no, no local news, and that is in part because we are a small town. So I, I pretty much miss out on, on that stuff, and I rely on my friends to tell me. So it sounds to me that by making a deliberate choice to get your news from various multiple different news outlets, maybe even some that you don't agree with politically, you can avoid the danger of confirmation bias, which of course is the tendency to only seek out sources that reinforce what you already believe. One of the scariest things someone can say to me is, I don't care how much evidence you ever present, I will never change my mind about this. That's really dangerous thinking. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. But there are other forces lining up to have their way with journalism. What concerns you about the future of media? One of the first things that comes to mind is, how do we operate in a world where you can plausibly deny anything? We have you on tape doing and saying a certain thing, and you can say, no, I did not do and say that thing. And so accountability in the future is something that concerns me a lot. And truth, you know, and not in the, I don't know, capital T, but what, what actually happened? How do, we, how do we know that in the future? Fake news and conspiracy theories are only going to become more persuasive as technology allows faking things to, to become easier and allows reaching vulnerable people to become easier too. 
You know, I've always said that the press has an obligation, a moral responsibility to question the government at every turn, not because they're trying to dig up dirt on elected officials necessarily, but because in a true democracy, we elect the government to represent us and our interests against, as they say, all threats, foreign and domestic, and keeping honest people honest is a tenet of a vibrant, advancing society. I've always found it interesting that when an aggressive nation attacks another, as we see happening right now in Ukraine, the aggressor first seizes the media so that they can control the narrative. And in this case, Russia is using it to control the messaging internally as well. Sounds to me like the press is pretty important. People don't understand that journalism is another branch of our government. It's not like that we don't elect these people. It's not like they have their own special building. But the First Amendment, you know, specifically protects journalism because they understood that they're the only ones who are going to keep government in check. The government's not reporting on itself, really. When's the last time, you know, you saw a press release from the White House that was about something dumb the White House has done, you know? That's the job of the Washington Post and the New York Times. I don't think anything could make the point of how important journalism is than dictators. If it's the first thing they want to get rid of, if it's the first thing they want control of, then it must be the most important thing to democracy. Well said, my friend. So, Rob, any final thoughts for our audience? If you're curious about what life in Alaska is really like, I hope you'll check out my Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska podcast. That's our goal. Life up here is crazy. And everybody, just your average person walking down the street, has a like really nuts story about life up here. Nature almost every day is trying to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> at least on an annual basis, nature is trying to kill us up here. <laughs> and uh, so if you want to know more about what life up here is like, check out the Dark Winter Nights podcast and you'll hear a lot of fun, sometimes scary, sometimes sad stories about the real Alaska. Rob Prince, documentary filmmaker at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and producer of the wonderful podcast Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska. Check it out in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And Rob, thank you for sharing your thoughts about journalism and media and the importance of a free press. And folks, one more time, please check out the podcast. It's one of the best out there. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.